Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And um, I've been going on a lot of trips lately, both for work and for my personal life, you know, going on vacations and stuff, which means that I tend to get on planes quite a lot. So I thought today we'd talk about the history of airplanes and how airplanes work. I've talked a lot about different parts of planes in the past, but after doing a quick search, I realized I'd never really done a full episode about how planes themselves work. This is actually a pretty tricky field, as it is one that has been the subject of a lot of discussion, as well as misinformation, or at least an incomplete explanation of how things work, or an incorrect explanation of the how. The why tends to be correct, but the how tends to be confused. And it has led to jokes and memes that ultimately, you know, airplanes work on some sort of magic that depends upon us believing that it will work, sort of like the Peter Pan theory of flight. And that's definitely taking things to extremes. No one really believes that. But when you consider all the various explanations for what is going on, you can feel like the joke might be coming from a pretty sincere place. So let's start, before we get into the how, with the history of flight. Because you guys know how much I enjoy going into history lessons on this show. This is no exception. So there were a lot of people who dreamed of mastering flight over the past several hundred years, thousands of years actually, uh, many attempted to emulate the way birds fly, which seems pretty understandable. You see birds soaring through the sky or darting about, and you think, well, what's the secret there? How can we do the same thing? And so lots of people tried to emulate that. They created various rigs or devices that had moving wings And the thought was that if we could just build wings of the right size that can move at the proper speed and the the proper range of motion, similar to that of a bird's wings, we too could fly through the sky. Now, the name for this type of machine, one that has movable wings, is an ornithopter. And legend has it that uh, Architus of Tarentum made a wooden bird with this type of wing motion back in 400 BCE. And you might know from Greek mythology the story of Daedalus and Icarus, who were able to fly using man-made wings attached to their arms. At least, they did until Icarus flew too close to the sun. Spoiler alert. Leonardo da Vinci similarly worked on a few theoretical designs that relied upon moving wings in the late 1400s. Some people argue that da Vinci's designs would ultimately lead toward the development of the helicopter. But generally speaking, the movable wing design remained impractical. It wasn't providing enough lift or thrust to actually achieve flight. At best, the machines would allow for very short, unimpressive hops, like maybe hopping an inch off the ground. And at worst, they didn't manage to lift up anything at all. However, Leonardo da Vinci, along with several other eggheads in history like Galileo and Isaac Newton, among many others, would advance our understanding of aerodynamics, which is the study of properties of moving air, particularly as it has to do with interactions with solid objects. By understanding how moving air affects solid objects and vice versa, we could start to build working theories on how to leverage that knowledge and create a working heavier-than-air flying machine. 
Now, this work was expanded upon by mathematicians and engineers, people like John Smeaton, uh, Daniel Bernoulli, and Leonard Euler. They explored the relationship between air pressure and air velocity. Uh, A hoity-toity by the name of George Cayley would prove to be incredibly important in our understanding. He proposed that any working aircraft would need separate systems to provide lift, propulsion, and control, something the famous Wright brothers would repeat in the early 1900s. He also began to move away from the ornithopter design to a fixed-wing approach for aircraft. So, in other words, the wing itself doesn't move with relation to the body of the aircraft. It stays fixed in place, and other elements are what allow the aircraft to fly. You don't have to worry about having the wings move in any particular pattern. Now, Cayley's work led him to the conclusion that the way to produce lift was to design a machine that would create an area of low pressure above the wing and an area of higher pressure below the wing. So above the wing, you have very uh, low pressure, comparatively speaking. Below the wing, you have very high pressure. So you've got support under you, right? You've got air pushing up against the wing from below and not, not as much, you know, air pressure above. So the high pressure beneath would lift the wing up, acting as a support in a way. Cayley was specifically exploring wing designs that had an arch to them. And his ideas were sound and in line with Bernoulli's theorem, which describes the behavior of moving fluids. And we have to remember that our atmosphere is a fluid in this sense. Gases have fluidic movement. Uh, Gases are fluids just as liquids are fluids. But this is where a lot of sources get things a little muddled. And it's understandable, but it ends up being a, a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what is going on. So the... Incorrect explanations tend to be right in describing the fact that the reason fixed-wing flight works is that the movement of the aircraft through the air creates an area of low pressure above the wing and an area of high pressure below the wing, but they often mess up the actual explanation of how this is happening, what is actually going on. So let me give you the wrong way to describe it first, and we'll get that out of the way. So typically, the description starts with the design of the wing itself, which is usually described as having a flat bottom and a curved upper part in which the front part of the wing, the leading edge, ends up curving up to become a bit thicker toward the front of the wing and then tapers toward the back of the wing where the upper surface slopes back down and meets the lower surface for the back edge or trailing edge of the wing. And if you're looking at the cross-section of the wing, then you kind of get a sideways teardrop shape, right? The the, uh, leading edge gets thicker and then tapers back down until it meets again at the trailing edge. Uh, By the way, the technical name for the cross-section of a wing is an airfoil. Uh, Airfoils do not necessarily have to follow that shape, but many do. Many early airfoils would follow that curved design. Now, again, the wrong description for what is causing lift states that when the wing moves through a fluid, or conversely, when a fluid moves past the wing, either way will work. There has to be motion, but the motion can work in either way. You can either have the fluid moving at a proper speed against 
the solid object. That's the way we test things out in wind tunnels. We have a stationary object and we blow wind past it. Or the object itself can move through the fluid, which is the way airplanes work. They fly through the air. Either way, according to this incorrect explanation, the air molecules, when they hit that leading edge, that front edge of the wing, end up splitting into two different pathways. Some of the air molecules are traveling over the top surface of the wing, and some are traveling on the bottom surface of the wing. Well, the top surface of the wing has that curve to it, which means that the air molecules have to travel further from the front edge to the back edge, right, than it would on the lower side of the wing, because the lower side is straight. And as we know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So the bottom edge of the wing is a straight line to go from the leading edge to the trailing edge, straight path. But if you're going over the top, you have to follow that curve, which means you're actually traveling more distance. And so that is a longer way to travel. And according to this incorrect uh, description of lift, the air molecules traveling on top of the wing have to go faster than the molecules traveling below the wing, and then they meet back up at the trailing edge. So let's say you've got air molecule one and air molecule two. Molecule one's traveling over the wing. Molecule two is traveling under the wing, and they both meet at the far end. But in order to do that, molecule one has to travel faster than molecule two. And according to Bernoulli's theorem, Daniel Bernoulli, a fast-moving fluid is at a lower pressure than a slower-moving fluid. So, says this description, the air pressure above the wing is lower than the air pressure below the wing. Now, it is true that the air pressure above the wing is lower and that the air pressure uh, below the wing is higher. I keep thinking that I've said this the wrong way because I'm talking about above and below and higher and lower, and you flip them right? Because everything above the wing is a lower pressure. Everything below the wing is a higher pressure. That part is right. So the destination is correct. It's the journey to get there that we've got wrong because uh, there would need to be some reason for the upper and lower air molecules to have to travel to arrive at the same destination at the same time. But there's no reason for that at all. There's no reason why air molecule one and air molecule two have to meet back up again at the trailing edge. One of them can easily travel faster than the other. There's no conservation of velocity between the two. Now, if it were true that the air molecules on the top and the air molecules on the uh, below had to travel uh, at a speed where they would meet up again, that that was absolutely necessary, this description would work. If that were true, if air molecule one and two had to meet on the far end again, this would be an accurate theory. However, the flaw in this description goes by the name the equal transit theory, or sometimes the longer path theory. Now, before I explain what is really going on with lift, let's consider for a moment how we know this common description is incorrect. First, if this were actually how wings would generate lift, it would mean that any plane that did not have this wing design would fail to generate lift because you wouldn't have that longer path on top. So in other words, if you had a straight wing design for your aircraft, there's no way it would be able to fly. It could not generate lift if this were in fact the only way it worked. And we know that's not the case. There are lots of aircraft out there that have a flat wing design. A paper airplane doesn't have a curved wing and it can generate lift. You just have to give it enough thrust and it will fly. It doesn't immediately plummet. Um, it does lose 
speed because of drag. We'll talk about drag in a little bit. And if it loses speed, then it's not generating enough lift to maintain flight, so it will eventually fall. But that's a flat wing, and it does work. So flat wings can work as well as curved wings. So that part is out. Further, if that explanation were absolutely true, planes with curved wings would never be able to fly upside down. Because if they were to roll over, and the whole reason why lift was generated was because air was traveling further on one side than the other, and then meeting back up with the air molecules, then the plane's wings would actually create lower air pressure uh, below the plane and higher air pressure above the plane, and that would drive the plane downward. So instead of uh, having lift holding the plane up, you would be creating a force that combined with gravity would pull the plane downward or push the plane downward, and you would end up with a catastrophic result. But we know that's not the case. Trained pilots can fly upside down in properly designed aircraft, you know, aircraft that can withstand the forces of rolling over on, on, uh, to their backs. You can still fly inverted that way. So clearly, there has to be something else going on here. The explanation does not work as it stands. So, to be clear, the end result of how lift works is the same in that a plane's wings do create areas of low pressure above and high pressure below the wing. But the way they do it is different from the explanation commonly given. So in other words, the common explanation gives us the right end result, but uses the wrong way to get there. So it's sort of like using the wrong process to solve a math problem, but accidentally getting the right answer anyway. Sure, the answer is technically what you were looking for, but the important part is not getting the right answer. It's knowing the right way to get to that answer. So let's talk about what's actually going on. First, uh, air does, in fact, move faster over the top edge than the lower edge of the wing. Uh, much faster, in fact. Air molecules traveling over the top of the wing will arrive at the trailing edge before air molecules traveling on the lower side. So that air molecule 1 and 2 example I gave before, air molecule 1 is going over the wing, air molecule 2 is going under the wing. Air molecule 1 is actually going to arrive at the trailing edge first. They don't meet up again. So there's none of those air molecules splitting up at the leading edge, meeting at the trailing edge. The air molecules traveling beneath the wing are actually meeting up with totally new air particles that hit the leading edge later on. More importantly, a wing deflects air, and the way it does so creates the area of lower pressure above the wing and the area of higher pressure below the wing. You can think of the air below a wing as getting compressed or squished while the air immediately above a wing enters into more space than it had previously occupied. And this is because we're talking about a solid structure moving through a fluid. The difference in air pressure is what causes the big change in the fluid's speed. So in other words, the change in air pressure is what is effect affecting those air molecules' speed across the wing. It's the opposite of what the equal transit theory states, which is that the difference in speed causes the change in pressure. Actually, it's the change in pressure that causes the difference in speed. And the air molecules traveling both on the top side of the wing and the bottom will, at the end, have a downward velocity once they leave the trailing edge of the wing. So why does the air traveling over the wing move downward at the end? If the air molecules moving over the top of the wing, this curved surface in your typical airfoil, why would those air molecules be moving downward? I mean, surely they would just continue horizontally in a straight line, right? Now, it's because in our system, we still have the atmosphere above the plane to consider. 
uh, that, you know, when we're first talking about air pressure around the wing, we're looking at the immediate area around the wing. But you still have all the rest of the atmosphere above the plane to consider. Now, immediately over the wing, the air pressure is lower due to the presence of this physical object moving through a fluid or the fluid moving across the object or both because it's all a matter of perspective. But above that, you still have all that atmosphere at normal air pressure depending on that altitude. So all that air is still pushing down on the area around the plane and it starts pushing down on that lower pressure air and that forces that lower pressure air downward at the trailing edge of the wing. And this brings us to another big important factor in lift called downwash. Uh, that is the amount of air the wing is forcing downward. Now, according to Isaac Newton's third law of motion, if you have a mechanical system applying force in one direction in a system, an equal opposite force applies to that mechanical system. So an airplane forcing air downward will also experience lift upward. It's equal to the amount of force of the air going down. This is easier to imagine if we think about a helicopter, right? A helicopter has rotors that act similar to the way an airplane's airfoils works. The rotors rotate in a circle. So instead of a plane moving horizontally through a fluid, you have this rotor that's rotating around in a circle, and that forces air downwards, and that creates the lift that allows helicopters to fly. Airplane wings do the same thing, but it's less obvious to us. Those downward-traveling air molecules at the trailing edge of a wing are the downwash of a plane, and it's a secondary source of lift, along with that air pressure description I just gave. So it's not the primary source, it's secondary, but it does contribute to the lift that the plane experiences. Now, this is why an airplane's wings aren't perfectly horizontal with regard to the body of the plane. If you look at an airplane, you will notice that the wings have a bit of a tilt to them, so that the leading edge of the wing is actually pointed up a little bit, and the trailing edge is pointed down a little bit. And this creates what we call the angle of attack. And the angled wings encourage this downwash effect. If you've ever put your hand uh, out into the wind and you tilted your hand in different ways and you get to that sweet spot where you feel like, oh, well, now my hand is, is staying up because of the angle it's at as it's going through the wind. Like if it's out a car window, by the way, don't do that. It's dangerous. But if you were to do that and you felt it, you know what I'm talking about. Same thing with airplane wings. That's why they're at that tilt. All right, so that's the explanation of lift. And in a moment, I'll talk more about how the Wright brothers worked on creating a working heavier-than-air flying machine. But first, let's take a quick break. Now, I just spent a lot of time going over lift, but... That's just one of the forces that are acting on a plane in flight. And I mentioned one other briefly as well. Uh, there are three other forces that are all acting on a plane, so four total. You've got lift, that's an upward force on the plane. There's thrust, that's the forward force of a plane. Then, and you have to have your thrust to be strong enough to create an airflow around the wings to generate the lift to keep a plane in flight. So you need to be moving forward enough through the fluid, fast enough through the fluid, so that you can generate lift. Uh, or the fluid has to be moving fast enough past you in order to do that. Again, it's all a matter of perspective. If a plane moves too slowly through the air, it won't create the difference in air pressure and downwash sufficient enough to maintain lift. So thrust is really important. Drag 
is a force that opposes the forward motion of the aircraft. So this is sort of the force that's acting uh, in a backward motion against the aircraft. It's a mechanical force generated by the interaction of a solid body with a fluid. And it depends upon the difference in velocity between the solid object and the fluid. Uh, you experience drag. If you've ever been in a swimming pool, you're just walking through and you feel that resistance. That resistance is drag. You're forcing water molecules to move around you as you walk through. Uh, friction plays a factor in this. There's also a concept called induced drag, uh, which involves the way that the, the air pressure is, uh, is changing and sort of how that is... Um, reconciling at the trailing edge of a wing, but it gets really technical. And I figure you guys probably need a break after I tackled lift. Suffice it to say, drag opposes forward motion. So through aircraft design and propulsion systems, we have to overcome drag to maintain a proper forward velocity to maintain lift. So we do that with making aircraft more aerodynamic, you know, uh, reducing that resistance and by having appropriately powerful engines to propel uh, with enough thrust to maintain lift. The fourth force in flight is gravity. This is obviously the force pulling downward on the plane. So we have thrust, that's the forward force, drag, which is the backward force, lift, which is the upward force, and gravity, which is the downward force. All of these are vectors because they all have an amplitude and a direction. So aircraft design has to take all of those forces into account. All right, so we got the technical description of the forces acting on the planes out of the way. Let's get back to the history of stuff. Now, keep in mind that throughout this history description that I'm doing, uh, people were still sussing out the nature of lift, as is obvious by the fact that we still today have textbooks and articles that give an incorrect explanation of what is going on, or maybe how I should, I should say um, how it is going on. Now, in the 1870s, a couple of engineers, uh, one named Francis H. Winham and John Browning is the other, built the first wind tunnel. And that would become a critical component for testing wing designs and learning more about the practical effects of those designs. More work was done by a dude named Horatio Phillips. A lot of really great names in this history, by the way. Uh, Horatio Phillips built an improved wind tunnel and created an airfoil design that would become the basis for most wing designs in the following decades. Then we have Otto Lilienthal. He was a, uh, or Lilienthal. He was a German engineer who took Cayley's work and began serious testing of various wing designs and angles of attack to find out what would work best. What is the most efficient way to generate lift? What's the best design and best angle to get that effect? And he saw that different angles of attack allowed for different results in lift. Angling a wing could improve the ability to generate lift up to a point. And then beyond a certain angle, which is around 15 degrees, uh, the ability to generate lift would drop off again. So his work became the basis for many other engineers who followed, including the Wright brothers, and Otto himself was no slouch. He, he built several gliders, including biplane gliders, and he began conducting test glide flights, both manned and unmanned ones. And he probably went on more than 2,000, maybe as many as 2,500 test flights. Tragically, it was during one of those tests that he met his end in 1896 after a fatal crash. Next, we have Samuel Langley, who was an astronomer who seemed to have a pretty promising jump on creating a working aircraft. He wanted to use a steam-powered engine to create the thrust needed to achieve the lift necessary for flight. So he built a model of a plane. 
smaller than a full-scale version, and it was an unmanned aircraft, and he called it the Aerodrome. In 1891, so a few years before uh, Otto would have his, his fatal crash, uh, Langley tested this design, and the Aerodrome flew for about three-quarters of a mile. At that point, the aircraft ran out of fuel, a steam-powered aircraft. It was enough to get Langley a sizable grant to try and build a full-scale version, but unfortunately, he discovered his design couldn't scale up because as you got larger, you're going to need more power to generate the thrust, and more power meant you needed a heavier steam engine, and, ev- and eventually that, that ratio just wouldn't work out. The steam engine was just too heavy, and so you would need even more power to generate enough lift to get the heavier aircraft up, and there was no way to have the steam engine actually provide the power needed, and he ultimately had to abandon his design. Uh, The plane just needed more lift than it could generate from thrust, and thus it could not fly. In 1894, Octave Chanute, another great name, published a collection of works called Progress in Flying Machines. He collected the wisdom and experimental results of numerous efforts throughout the aeronautic uh, societies out there, and and essentially wrote down everything that had been done up to that point in the efforts to achieve powered flight. Then we get to Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers. They recognized Cayley's wisdom and the need for separate systems to provide the lift, thrust, and control of the aircraft. They also relied upon Chanute's book to help guide their own efforts. They came up with their own experiment with regard to controlling a flying body's motion through flight, uh, the whole steering part of the equation. They believed that by controlling the shape of the wing, they could control the flight itself, including stuff like roll and pitch. So the three types of movement you need to know about with aircraft once they're flying in three-dimensional space are roll, pitch, and yaw. Uh, roll uh, is sort of the the tilt, the side-to-side tilt of an aircraft. So whether it's tilting to the left or tilting to the right. Um, as I'll talk about later, this tilting becomes a very important part of steering. Pitch is the, uh, the angle of the nose and the tail, right? So if, an, if you are... Um, pitching up, then the aircraft's nose is at a higher uh, altitude than the tail and the aircraft is climbing, pitched down, and the nose is at a lower altitude than the tail and the uh, aircraft is descending. And then yaw involves turning to the left or to the right, um, although yaw and roll are very, very important components for steering. Anyway, those are the three ways of uh, thinking about the the three different axes of flight controls in three-dimensional space. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. So anyway, the Wright brothers said, all right, well, by manipulating the shape of the wing, we can add steering to an aircraft. Um, They built several gliders, both unmanned and manned gliders, and tested different wing shapes and designs, including in wind tunnels. And they worked on perfecting that. And this brings us to another important component of the design. Getting up in the air is one thing, but from that point on, how do you control where you're going, right? How do you actually maneuver a solid object through the air, that three-dimensional space? There's no ground to brace against. And how do you steer the darn thing? And that was what the Wright brothers were really working on in those early tests, trying to determine the most effective way to control the flight of an aircraft once it's airborne. 
So we'll talk about that for a second. Steering something means you have to be able to control the direction in which that something is traveling. It's very basic and obvious observation, but I feel like we have to start somewhere. So you need to be able to change the object's velocity because velocity is a vector. Again, a vector is something that has both an amplitude and a direction, has an amount and a direction associated with it. So even if the speed of the moving object doesn't change, it's moving at the same rate of travel even as you change its direction, if you change the direction, you've also changed the velocity because the direction part of a vector has changed. So uh, that's an important thing to remember, that a velocity can change even if the speed stays the same because you've changed the direction of travel. Tilting the plane, having one wing dip lower than the other side, means that some of the lift acting on the plane is now actually pushing the plane in a sideways motion. So when you roll the plane a little bit, you are actually changing the lift dynamics, and some of that lift that otherwise would be holding the plane up is pushing the plane to, uh, to a side. It creates centripetal force, and it eventually will make the plane move in a circular path. You know, the more the uh, dramatic the roll up to a point, the more tight that circle's going to be. However, uh, this, by the way, is known as banking. When you talk about airplanes banking, it's because they are, they're tilting this way and they're rolling and uh, starting to turn. But another thing you have to remember is this reduces the amount of lift actually holding the aircraft up. Uh, so, you know, you're dedicating some of the, the lift to turning the aircraft, not just holding it up. So if you don't do anything, if you're maintaining the same speed, you're changing the velocity by changing the direction, that reduction in lift means that your aircraft is going to start to lose altitude. So you got to do something to counteract that. Uh, typically, you do something like increase the angle of attack of the wings or using the tail uh, to compensate for this loss of lift, of upward lift, so that you don't lose altitude. Modern aircraft do this with a flight control surface called an elevator, often on the tail, and the elevator can adjust its angle uh, to change the angle of attack with the fluid that the aircraft's moving through, the air itself, and provide more upward lift. Other movable control surfaces can affect the plane's pitch um, and the yaw. The yaw is typically a, it's a rudder that's attached to the tail of a plane. And steering actually involves controlling the roll and yaw of the aircraft. So you have both the yaw and the tilt of the plane that allows you to make uh, more controlled turns with the aircraft. Each of these systems has its own controls. And in modern aircraft, uh, the ailerons control the roll. These are on the outer rear edge of the wings, and they can move in opposite directions. So if you ever sat on a window seat that's right next to a wing, and you see this little thing at the very end of the plane's wing, and it's either tilting down or it's tilting up, uh, that's part of this system that's meant to control the roll of the plane and allow for turns. Um, the yaw, like I said, comes from the plane's rudder. It's typically a vertical tail fin that can swivel left or right. And the pitch comes from the elevators, like I mentioned earlier. Those are typically on the aircraft's tail as well, on a horizontal plane, not a vertical plane like the rudder is. And the elevators can also tilt up or down, decreasing or increasing lift on the tail, which makes the airplane behave a little bit like a lever, right? If you increase the lift on a tail, then the tail gets lifted up and the nose of the airplane gets tilted downward uh, and vice versa. But that's just one part 
of the equation. Or really, I guess you could say two parts of the equation because wing design contributes to both flight control and lift. But they also needed to work on thrust. They needed a propulsion system that would get their aircraft up to a sufficient speed to generate the lift needed to sustain flight. They had built gliders and done manned and unmanned tests at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Uh, They chose Kitty Hawk, by the way. They were not natives to North Carolina, but they chose Kitty Hawk because it was pretty dependable for some good winds due to being on the Atlantic coast. So um, you get a good stiff breeze over at Kitty Hawk. I've been there. And uh, one of the most popular activities over at Kitty Hawk is kite flying. A lot of people flying kites, uh, big, elaborate ones, way up in the sky because they get these nice, strong winds. Uh, By the way, if you get a chance to visit Kitty Hawk and to go visit the site of the first flight from uh, the Wright brothers, I highly recommend it. It is a very interesting location, a lot of cool uh, information there, and you can actually walk the pathway of those test flights. It's pretty neat. Anyway, as part of this work, the brothers had designed a movable tail component that would help with the flight stability, particularly when the pilot of the glider wanted to steer. And now it was time to work on an aircraft capable of generating its own thrust to maintain flight, not just to be able to glide. And this required a lot more research, as the brothers had to not only design a motor that could turn a propeller fast enough to generate enough thrust, but also an airplane frame capable of both supporting the motor's weight and to withstand the vibrations the motor created during operation. The result of all their research was the design of an aircraft they simply called the Flyer. And some people refer to it as the Wright Flyer. A bicycle mechanic named Charles Taylor would build the motor for the brothers. It was a custom-built motor, a gasoline-fueled 12-horsepower motor. And the motor was used to drive a chain that in turn would link to gears that would uh, turn the two propellers. So it's like a bicycle, you know, a bicycle's wheels. The propellers were chain-driven. This motor, through powering the propellers, would provide the needed thrust. The right flyer had a wingspan of 12.2 meters, or 40.3 feet, and the right wing was four inches longer than the left wing. So why is that? Why was the right wing longer? Well, that was because the Wright brothers' design meant that the engine for the plane would sit a little to the right of the center line. It was not centered along the uh, axis of the airplane. It actually went a little to the right side. That meant the pilot would actually lay down on the left side of the center line, but the engine weighed 77.1 kilograms, or 170 pounds. The pilot weighed only 65.8 kilograms, or 145 pounds. So the brothers needed some way to balance the scales, as it were, so that the plane would fly properly without the constant need for adjustment, since you had a heavier engine on one side and a lighter pilot on the other. And so they made the right wing a little longer than the left in order to generate a bit more lift than the left side and thus compensate for the added weight on the right side of the plane. The Wright brothers held the first test flight on December 17, 1903. Orville Wright was the pilot, and the plane lifted off the ground and traveled about 120 feet, or 35 meters. It flew just 12 seconds, but it was enough to secure the Wright brothers the acknowledgement that they had created the first heavier-than-air, manned, steerable flying machine. They would build other aircraft based off that design, but the only one they ever attempted to preserve was the original Wright Flyer. And for a short while, that airplane called the Kensington Science Museum in London home, 
But in 1948, the flyer returned to the United States to become part of the Smithsonian's exhibits, and it is now in the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. When we come back, I'll talk about some other elements of aircraft and how those contribute to flight. Okay, so the Wright brothers were two of the many pioneers of piloted heavier-than-air aircraft. There were lots of other people, and I hope I've made it clear that the success of the Wright brothers depended heavily on the research and work of numerous people before them. Also, they weren't the only ones working on the problem uh, when they achieved their success in North Carolina. It's why I define their success as being the first to pilot a heavier-than-air aircraft that had at least some rudimentary flight controls, because otherwise you have to talk about a whole bunch of people who did lighter-than-air aircraft and, and some other stuff. And many people would quickly follow in the footsteps or flight steps of the Wright brothers, building better aircraft with more sophisticated control mechanisms, and development and innovation were in the fast lane. So we're just going to cover a few more basics, and I might have to do a future episode to talk about some of the more modern systems aboard aircraft, because that would make this show run way too long if I were to keep up with that. So let's talk about propellers. The propellers on a prop plane are effectively doing the same thing that the wings do on a plane by creating lift. Only in this case, the direction of the lift is forward with respect to the plane. It's like a helicopter's rotors, moving the blades of a propeller in a circular path at a fast enough rotational speed creates the force and drives the aircraft forward. But unlike a wing, which tends to have a fixed angle of attack across the entire length of the wing's surface, a propeller blade has a twist in it so that the pitch angle varies along the length of the blade. Uh, some modern planes have a controllable pitch propeller, which allows the pilot to change this rotation in order to have the plane perform at optimal efficiencies at different airspeeds. Now, jet engines are different, and I've covered them in past episodes, but here's a quick rundown. From the outside, a jet engine looks like a tube. If you look at one head-on, you'll see a big fan thing in the front of that tube. And at first, you might think that a jet is similar to a, pro a propeller plane, that it's generating forward thrust by just rotating that fan super fast. But that's not quite right. The purpose of the fan is to suck air into the jet engine. The fan attaches to a shaft and it spins rapidly and it pulls air into the engine. Uh, behind the fan on that same shaft or on a shaft around the fan's shaft, there are a bunch of other blades attached. And these blades are compressors. They compress the air. They squeeze that air down into a smaller and smaller space. Uh, that also increases the pressure, obviously, of the air and also the temperature of the air and gets it to the right temperature for the next stage, which involves combustion. So behind the compressor is a combustion chamber or series of combustion chambers, and the compressed air enters into the chambers and nozzles that also enter the chambers spray a fine mist of fuel there, and an ignition component creates an electric spark that lights the mixture of compressed air and fuel, and you get burning gases inside the, the chamber. Those burning gases expand as they heat up. The only exit out of this engine is a nozzle at the back. 
So the expanding gases escape out the nozzle at a tremendous amount of force. And because we know every action has an equal but opposite reaction, we know that this backward-pushing force of escaping gas creates a forward-pushing force on the aircraft itself. So if you can generate enough force to overcome the weight of the jet and get it up to speed, you can use it to provide the thrust needed to get lift and take off. Oh, and uh, that escaping gas also turns a turbine at the end. So you've got the combustion chamber, you've got uh, an exit out the back of the combustion chamber where the gas is passing through a nozzle. It also ends up turning a turbine, and that turbine provides the rotational force for the, uh, the, uh, the compression blades on that rotating shaft and also the fan. You know, I mentioned those earlier. That's what's actually causing the rotational force. So not only does the jet engine provide thrust for the aircraft, it also harnesses some of that energy to operate the components of the engine itself. There are variations on this design. There are two or three spool jet engines, for example, but they all work on the same basic principle. Um, one variation, the one we see in commercial jets, a very popular one, is the turbofan jet. Uh, in this version, the engine casing is much larger than the combustion section. So you can think of it as a big tube around a much smaller tube. The smaller tube is the combustion part. So you've got the fan that's pulling air in. You've got the compressor blades that are compressing the air down. But there's also space for, the, for some of that air to pass along the outside of the combustion chamber. So some air is kind of going in between the combustion chamber, and the casing for the jet engine itself. And the air coming in is compressed, and most of that air is passing along the outside of the engine. That provides the majority of the thrust. It's not the superheated stuff. It's this compressed air that's passing through this bleed bypass uh, section. And uh, it also not just provides thrust, but it also is able to cool the engine so that it remains in operating operating temperatures. It, it avoids overheating. So the air that passes through the engine still goes through the same combustion process I mentioned earlier and provides additional thrust as it escapes, plus provides the, uh, the, the force necessary to rotate that turbine and keep everything in motion. Uh, by the way, jet engines can also be used to power stuff other than aircraft, or rather I should say turbine engines like this can use, be used to power stuff like tanks or they can help power helicopters. They don't do it the exact same way as a jet plane, which has this exhaust be part of the thrust mechanism. Uh, instead, the tail end of that engine, there's another turbine that connects to some sort of drive mechanism, such as a tank's treads or a helicopter's rotors. So the, the turbine engine pulls air in, you've got the combustion, all of this is used to create the energy needed to rotate a different turbine that then sends that power on to the propulsion system of the tank or the helicopter. Uh, these engines also have to have an exhaust port for all that hot air to escape, but it's not used like a thruster on a jet plane. But hey, for these engines to work, you still got to get that turbine spinning, right? And that presents a challenge because... These are engines that work fine while the jet is in operation, while it's actually moving through the air, because the process of the jet engine working provides the energy needed to turn the turbine that pulls more air in through the system. By the way, you're not generating more energy than you're expending here. I want to make that clear. Just rather that the process is not just providing thrust, but providing the, the force needed to turn those turbines. 
and those fan blades and compressor blades. But in order to do that, you have to get up to speed in the first place. How do you get it started? Well, the turbines are, are too heavy and need to turn too quickly to rely upon an electric motor to do it. So you can't just have an electric motor attached to this thing to jumpstart the turbine engine. That's not going to work. They're far too large and heavy. So to do it, you have to feed compressed air into a stopped jet engine to get things started, to start turning those fan blades and to get enough air pressure in there for you to ignite the combustion chambers. Now, if everything's working properly on the aircraft, you can use a system called the Auxiliary Power Unit, or APU, to do this. Um, it supplies the jet engine with compressed air, and you can start with just one engine. I'll explain how in a minute. So the APU is typically at the far end of a jet, on the main body of the jet, the fuselage. It's at the very end, and it uh, has three main functions. One of those is the main engine start sequence, but the other two big functions are to supply electrical power to the jet. Uh, there's a turbine in this jet engine that is connected to a generator, and thus you can use that to help supply electrical power to the jet. And also, it can provide bleed air pressure for the air conditioning system. Uh, bleed air pressure, think of the bleed air system as kind of like plumbing. It's a series of conduits or pipes in a jet that allow compressed air to pass through. So the APU itself is a small turbine engine, similar to a jet engine. There's an intake panel. It slides open and allows air to come into the system. And the APU, unlike the main engines, is small. So you can actually start it under battery power. You can have an electric motor attached to the APU. You turn it on. This starts the fan in the APU spinning, which then draws air in. And like turbofan engines, the APU has bleed air, so air that goes around the engine itself, and it enters into this bleed air pathway system that connects to other components of the jet. So you divert some of the air going through the APU to enter the jet itself through this bleed system, and the pressurized air goes to a, a component called the air turbine starter. And this connects to the engine's shaft through a clutch mechanism. Uh, and that allows the APU to provide compressed air to start turning the, uh, the fan and turbine in a jet engine. And this reminds us about fluid dynamics. You can either have a solid object moving very quickly through relatively still fluid or fast-moving fluid moving past a relatively still solid object, and you'll get the same results. So pushing compressed air through the main engine creates a situation similar to the engine operating at flight speed. So once the engine reaches a certain percentage of its top revolutions per minute, uh, somewhere around 28%, the air inside is compressed enough to sustain combustion, and the engine will ignite fuel in the combustion chambers, and that will provide the energy necessary to take over from there, and the engine will perpetuate its own rotation, and you can stop pumping compressed air into the system. Uh, from that point, you can use the APU to power up the second engine, or you could even use the first engine to do it because the engine system feeds into this bleed air system. So again, it's like, you know, plumbing, you've got all these conduits. You also have all these valves in that system that either allow air to pass through or prevent air from going there. So when you're starting up engine one, you would have all the other valves closed so that the compressed air can only follow one pathway to get to that engine. Now, sometimes the APU isn't, you know, totally working. 
and can't supply enough compressed air to do the job, in those cases, the ground crew will connect a land-based air compressor that's technically known as an air start unit, but most folks refer to it by a more informal name, the huffer cart. And the huffer cart sends, and huffer is H-U-F-F-E-R, it sends compressed air into the bleed system of a jet. So you just plug it into that bleed system and it provides the compressed air. And again, the valves leading to one engine are all open and the other valves are all closed. And once that first engine is started up and reaches the proper rotational speed, which is somewhere around the 80% mark, that engine can provide the compressed air to start the other engine or engine two. There might be multiple engines on the jet, like four engines or something. You can keep doing this process over and over. Now, I honestly didn't know any of that stuff about how jet engines start from from a stopped position before I researched this episode. I understood how jet engines worked, but I didn't know how they got them started. So I always wondered how that happened, since it seemed like the kind of system that only works once it's already working, which seems like a catch-22 like a building that issues permits, but the only way to get inside the building is to already have a permit. So how can you start the jet engine in the first place? And now I know. So now you know too. So those are the basics of flight. Thrust, lift, and flight controls. And granted, I spent the least amount of time on flight controls. I may need to do a future episode to talk more about that in greater detail to describe the physics behind them and how modern flight control systems work. In the meantime... I do have a lot of older episodes that go into things like jet engines, scramjets, autopilot systems, and more. It's actually kind of silly that it took me this long just to cover the basics of flight. That one's on me. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, you can get in touch with me. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. There you're going to find an archive of all of our older episodes, plus links to our social media presence and a link to our online store where you can buy Tech Stuff merch. And every purchase you go and make ends up helping our show. We greatly appreciate it. Hope you like the designs. Trying to get some new ones in there soon. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.